with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. This morning, uh, rather than verses 1 through 12, we'll read verses 1 through 4. Matthew 16, verses 1 through 4. These are the words of God. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the day, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, Would you please join me in prayer? Our God and Father, as we approach now your throne of grace, we do so by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that he is our righteousness. And, O Father, we pray and ask that now the benefits of Christ's mercy would flow to us that you would give us understanding by your Spirit. Lord, we pray and ask that you would make us zealous for good work. That we would be zealous for the glory of Jesus Christ and all the earth. That we would abandon ourselves to Him. And that we would know in this moment the fellowship of your love by your Holy Spirit. Fill us, Father, with your Spirit without measure. We ask for the sake of Christ, our beloved. Amen. Just to give you a little context here from the very beginning, um, I want you to know that uh, Matthew is is sort of building us up. We're we're at about halfway through Matthew's Gospel, and he's he's building us up for a, a tremendous moment where Peter confesses the Christ. But before we get to that, he's going to show us some aspects of ignorance, if you will. And so in Matthew 16, verses 1 to 20, we begin this, this whole sort of run-up. We're, we're working our way up, up a mountain, if you will, to use some illustration we've looked at before. But we see a striking comparison between carnal men and spiritual men. And you, you may say, well, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by a carnal man and a spiritual man. And we're going we're gonna to address that in just a second. But there's a striking, contra- a striking contrast between, between men, think about this, men who are led by their appetites and men who are led by the Spirit. Men who are led by their appetites and men who are led by the Spirit. You might think that this is primarily in behavior. So you, you might think of somebody who's, uh, for instance, sexually promiscuous, um, or they, they drink too much. This, this is what we're talking about. This is what a carnal man is. He uses bad language. But in, in this passage, I want you to notice very closely 
that Jesus is not speaking to pagan men. That is so important. When Jesus addresses the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he is addressing staunchly religious men. These are the men who stand up in the synagogues and open the scroll and read it for the people. These are not the guys that are hanging out at the pub too long on Friday night. If anything, these are men who will torture themselves for the sake of spirituality. And yet they're not spiritual. In this passage, we find religious men who are carnal. You could reverse that. You could say they are carnal men who are religious. religious. They actually come to Jesus. Think about this. They come to Jesus and ask him a question. They aren't the guys who ignore him altogether. These are the ones who, who come to, to Jesus. Remember, um, last week we talked about the fact that, that we have to bring men to Jesus. These are men who come. They come and ask a question. And so what distinguishes them as carnal is, that, is their motivation for coming to Christ. Their motivation for coming to Christ and ultimately Jesus' rejection of them as spiritually ignorant and wicked. And very simply, what we'll see in this passage is that Jesus tries, he judges, and he rejects carnal men. He judges and he rejects carnal men. Now, I think today there are lots of misperceptions about who the Pharisees were. And when Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees, some will say Jesus is rebuking Moses. Well, that's not the case. And I think as we've walked through Matthew's gospel, one thing should be crystal clear is that the Pharisees were men ignorant of God's word. They, they knew a little bit, but what they were really practiced in were their own traditions. Okay, what time of day is it? Um, I'm supposed to wash my hands now. That's the kind of thing that they knew really well. But Jesus, remember, in Matthew chapter 12, said to the Pharisees, Have you not read Exodus? Have you not read 1 Samuel? And the, and the answer that comes through that is, no, they hadn't, because they were ignorant of the principles of Scripture there. So that, those are the Pharisees. They weren't, some were priests, but you didn't necessarily have to be a priest. You were just a leader in the community who came and you took a vow and said, I will obey God's word, and you became part of the Pharisee club. Well, there were other clubs you could join. Maybe you didn't want to be as strict in your commitment to, um, to the word of God. You could become a Sadducee. And, and this is the other group that comes with the Pharisees in our text. Look at Matthew 16, 1. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came. Now, if you had lived in that day, you would recognize this was a momentous occasion. This is sort of like Republicans and Democrats coming together with one accord to do something. They are that, they are that far apart from one another. The Sadducees deny the resurrection. This is one of their core beliefs. They don't believe in a bodily resurrection. Nobody will be raised from the dead. That becomes, I hope that you understand, that will become essential to this passage of Scripture. 
These are men who deny the resurrection. They deny that Esther was a canonical book. And when you read what the rabbis said about the Pharisee, about the Sadducees, they would lump them together with heretics. Let me read to you just a quotation here. The Gemara asks, this is a rabbinic work, and does he not become wicked? Didn't we learn in a Mishnah? Do not be sure of yourself until the day you die, as Yohanan the high priest served in the high priesthood for 80 years now and ultimately became a Sadducee. For us, this might be he served in the Senate for 80 years and ultimately became a Democrat or something like that. They are not lifting him up in exalted praise. Even one who is outstanding in his righteousness can become a heretic. Now you understand how to think about Sadducees. So you have the Pharisees knew the law, so to speak, and the Sadducees who denied it coming together. There's a quotation that we use from time to time, and it's this one. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. You've heard that before? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. In other words, if I hate this person and you hate this person, we may not get along with one another, but we're united in our mutual hatred for that individual. And that's why the Pharisees and Sadducees come together in this moment. It is an outstanding demonstration of the failure of Israelite leadership in the whole nation. They're all corrupt. They're all corrupt. The shepherds have failed. And it shows us just in this moment the growing hatred for Jesus. We've seen the Pharisees come. Now they've sought out their enemies, probably plotting in secret how to overthrow him. And this is one of their efforts. Let's publicly embarrass him. So they come together. And the first thing that we notice in the passage as, it, as their carnality is is demonstrated is that they seek a sign. They seek a sign from Jesus. Let's look together again at verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, first of all, in demonstrating the carnality of these men, they asked Jesus for a sign. What are they asking for? Now, if you're thinking this through, and you're saying, well, they've seen all of the things that Jesus did. The man with the withered hand that was healed instantaneously. They've seen him, probably some of them were present when he took bread and fed 5,000 people and then 4,000 people. They've been party to all of these things. What on earth are they asking for? Why are they asking for a sign? Haven't they seen enough already? Well, as you work through the Old Testament, there are different kinds of signs. You might think of Genesis chapter 9. What's the sign that takes place in Genesis chapter 9? Well, God placed a rainbow in the heavens, didn't he? To to visibly illustrate his promise of peace with humanity in that moment. In Genesis chapter 17, God visited Abraham and gave him the sign of circumcision. 
It was a symbol. It demonstrated God's promise and His power. When we get into the book of Exodus, there are other signs that are not so pleasant. God gave the Hebrews and the Egyptians signs of His power that He is the one true God and He demolished all of the Egyptian gods through plagues. Those are referred to as signs. In Exodus 31, we read of another sign. The Sabbath day is given to God's people. It marks them out. This is what they're asking for. We want you to produce something from heaven, maybe like a plague. Maybe what you could do is bring a plague upon the, bring a, a plague upon the Romans, uh, our captors. So God is, God, is, God is not contrary. He's not opposed to providing signs to His people. But why did the Pharisees and the Sadducees come and ask for a sign? Look at the text. What are they doing? They're testing him. They're putting him to trial. This is a little bit of foreshadowing. Right away, as you're reading the Gospel, you know that the Pharisees and Sadducees did not approach Jesus so that they could learn from Him. They're not coming to Him to ask Him where He got His power or what they should understand about all of the things that He's done in their presence or the teaching that He has provided them. They're not asking about that. They're coming to put Him to the test. And later in Luke's gospel, he says that he, 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 he illustrates that they are, they're doing this from a malicious intent. Do you see? They hate him. And so they want to put him to a public disgrace, a public shame. They're, they're not pulling him aside, are they? And we know why they're doing it this way. Because they've been publicly humili humiliated by Christ, haven't they? They've been publicly humiliated by Christ. And now they want to one-up. This is what the devil did to Christ. Don't you remember in Matthew 3? The Spirit led him in the wilderness so that the devil might tempt or test him. It's the same word for 40 days. This is what the Pharisees and Sadducees are doing. And what we learn is that these men are not godly spiritual men. They are sinful, carnal men. And how can we say that they are sinful and carnal? Well, one, one, they believe that God is answerable to them. God owes us an answer. He is subject to us. I will believe if you give me sufficient evidence to believe. But let me tell you, buddy, you are accountable to me. And if you want my heart, if you want my mind, you have to show me. You have to prove it to me. We also see their carnality and that these are men who reject the Word of God as the testimony of God's glory to them. I think as we 
consider the position of the Pharisees and Sadducees, it's a good question to say, well, should we ask for signs today? We may not do it to this degree, but certainly we do it from time to time. Maybe in your own heart you've been mulling over a difficult decision and you want to know what God's will is and you say to yourself, well, Lord, if you'll you know, just, you know, just let a shooting star go across the sky and I'll know that's your answer and I should pull the trigger and buy that house. You say, Lord, give me a sign that you want me to be a professional baseball player and I'm, just let me square up this next pitch and take it over the wall. If you were really asking him for a sign, you would ask him to turn your bat into a tuna fish. Those are the kinds of signs and the power that God demonstrates. But the function of signs has always been, I want you to understand this, has always been to strengthen the faith of the faithful, never to generate faith in the faithless. You think about that moment when God came down to Abram and he gave him that sign of circumcision which correlates to the sign of baptism. What is God doing in that sign? He is trying to bolster the already existent faith of Abraham. He's not giving him faith. Abraham has come to him in, with doubt and he's struggling. Lord, I'm 99 years old. Am I going to have a child? And he gives him a sign of the covenant, a sign of his promise. And so God, God knows your weakness. He knows the, the moments when you struggle with decision. He knows the man who wants to obey and says, I, I just want to know which is the right direction to go in. But do you know how God normally strengthens His people? How God normally strengthens His people? It's not through spectacular signs from heaven. God strengthens His people by what we call the ordinary means of grace. He gives you bread. We don't look for spectacular revivals because we know that Sunday after Sunday, God is actively reviving His people. How? Through the preaching of His Word by giving you the Lord's Supper. He is feeding you on His grace. He's strengthening His people. I want you to turn over with me to Numbers chapter 14. Now, as you think about Israel, God's church under age, the juvenile infant church, you think about a people who have been given spectacular signs, don't you? They were brought out of Egypt. They saw the plagues, the death of the firstborn. They saw with their eyes the pillar of fire and of smoke leading them through the wilderness. And then they came to the Red Sea and they saw God part the Red Sea and they walked through it, not on muddy ground, on dry ground. And then they saw the sea close up. They saw miracle after miracle, true miracles of God, all of these signs of His power. Surely they would be faithful and believing people. But look what we read in Numbers 14, 11. 
And Jehovah said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Let's skip down to verse 22. None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. You you see what's happening here in, in Israel? All those signs, all the visible signs of God's power and a thimble full of faith. Signs don't impart faith. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees are not coming to Jesus to get faith. Instead, this request on their part simply demonstrates that they are carnal men. And how does Jesus respond? Look with me now at Matthew 16, verses 2 to 3. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be, fall, it will be fair weather. For the sky is red, and in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. This is crushing. I don't know if you realize it or not, but the Pharisees and Sadducees were not professional weathermen. That's not how they promoted themselves. Now, up to this point, understand that men had been predicting the weather, the Babylonians and the 600 B.C.s, and Aristotle even wrote a book about predicting the weather in the 300s B.C., and and so did one of his disciples. So men were very interested in predicting the weather. Greek men, philosophers, Babylonians, ungodly men were interested in predicting the weather for obvious reasons. The Chinese even had a calendar divided into 24 sections, all devoted to various seasons of weather. You can do that, Jesus says, just like Greeks and Romans and Babylonians. But when it comes to interpreting the signs of the times, you can't do it. You can predict the weather, in other words, you can predict the weather and you're not weather men. But you can't read the signs of the times, but you promote yourselves as theologians. They should have been cut to the quick at this. Literally, Jesus says, you're not able to do it. You can't do it. At this point, I think you might ask Jesus, well, why not call down fire from heaven? Elijah did it, standing on the mountain there with the prophets of Baal, and they all, remember he poured water all over 
the, the sacrifices? Why doesn't Jesus just do that? Why, why not call down fire? Why not actually burn up a few of those Pharisees and Sadducees? At least they'd be afraid enough to stop asking ridiculous questions. Jesus doesn't even bother with these men. By their questions, they demonstrate their hard-heartedness. That they are, as Jesus has already indicated, the blind who lead the blind. Jesus rebukes them. Lastly, we see that Jesus condemns them in verse 4. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, so he left them and departed. Notice very carefully here that Jesus condemns this generation. That is so important. He condemns this generation. What is he referring to when he talks about this generation? Well, well, what he's doing is he's, he's taking a term from the old covenant and he's applying it into the modern generation. He's saying you're just like your fathers. You're just like the ones whom the Babylonians came against and the Assyrians came against and the Persians and the Medes. You're just like all those old Israelites who saw all my signs and still disbelieved. You're just like them. That same unfaithfulness exists in Israel. And notice what Jesus calls them. He doesn't mince words. You're evil. He condemns them as evil. In other words, they are opposed to God and righteousness. Think about that. Here is the judge of the universe pronouncing against these religious men that they are evil. You're not halfway righteous in all of your striving and efforts to prove yourself to the watching public that you're a godly man. Jesus looks at them and He says, you are evil. What? Can you imagine the crowds who, who, who taught their children to aspire to be a Pharisee? Or if they're not as good as the other kids, aim a little lower and at least become a Sadducee. These are the models in the community of godliness. And Jesus looks at them and He says, evil. You are of your father the devil. But He doesn't just call them evil. He would call pagans and Romans evil. He would call Nero evil. Any of these men who reject His Word, He would call evil. But He wouldn't use this next term against a Roman. Notice what He says, you are adulterous. Wow. What is adultery? Well, adultery is is to have an extramarital affair. It is to, to be intimate with someone who's not your spouse to break the marriage bond. It's one thing to have sex outside of marriage, to be promiscuous. It's another thing altogether to to break the marriage bond in promiscuity. And this is what they are. I want you to turn over to Ezekiel chapter 16. We're going to begin 
In verse 1 of Ezekiel 16, you notice if your Bible's like mine, the title is The Lord's Faithless Bride. We could go to any of the prophets. We could go to Hosea. But let's begin reading in Ezekiel 16, verse 1. Again, the Lord, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth of the land of the Canaanite uh, are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field and you were abhorred on the day that you were born. You get the picture. This is a, an interracial uh, relationship of abominable parents and they came together and they spit you out. And because you were abominable in their eyes, what did they do? Nobody loved you. You were born behind the dumpster and your mother walked away and left you to die in your blood. Verse 6. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. I said to you, in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. You see this picture? God is lavishing His love upon Israel. Not only did He rescue Israel from death, as it were, and made them a people, He spread His garment over and took them as His bride. And as a faithful husband, he didn't just give her one piece of jewelry, he gave her one after the other, after the other, after the other, and he didn't make her wear wear that old sackcloth, he gave her silk to put on the finest of the finest. And this is a picture of God's grace toward Israel, do you see? That He gave them everything. These Pharisees and Sadducees have no excuse. I gave you My Word. You have Abram. You have Jacob. You have Moses. You have David. All of them. I gave it all to you. You had My kingdom. And there was gold and everything flowing to you. You had riches. And what did you do? You worshipped Baal. God describes her as a whore who doesn't sell her body to men. She pays men to come and sleep with her. That's what Israel became. Adulterous. And yet here is Jesus as we go back to Matthew 16. 
Now do you see? You want a sign. You want a sign? Adulterous woman, you want a sign. You're more than just deniers. You once were wed to God and turned to other gods. You're blind men. The only thing that you will receive, Jesus says, is the sign of Jonah. You remember from Jonah's prophecy that Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale and just like that, Jesus would be three days in the belly of the earth. You see what he's doing. Jesus is saying the only sign that you will receive is the only sign that I give to all the earth and it's this, that the Son of Man will be lifted up on a cross and He will be crucified and He will die and He will be buried and He will be raised again. Now why will He give them that sign? Why is He showing any compassion? He isn't. This is simply what will take place. It had been ordained since before the foundation of the earth. Jesus doesn't die to satisfy the appetites of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's simply saying to them, this is all you'll get. This is what we give to all men. You trust in the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That will be the sign to you of the power of God. Now you notice, how is this such a trippy thing for the Sadducees? They don't believe in a resurrection. They reject it out of hand. And that's it. The text finishes, so he left them and departed. We don't wait for their response. Jesus takes the counsel that he had already given to his disciples. If they do not receive you, simply knock the dust off your shoes and move on. I think the question for us, as we see Christ judge them and turn his back upon them, is how do I know if I am carnally minded? How do I know if I'm like these Pharisees and Sadducees? Well, there are some obvious things. You deny the existence of the supernatural. You know, there are people who say, I don't believe in miracles. And you say, well, why? And they say, well, I've never seen one. Makes sense. You deny the existence of the supernatural. There is no such thing as a spiritual. The only thing that I believe in is what I can see. Well, why do you believe in that? You deny God's existence. The man is a fool who says in his heart there is no God. You are carnally minded if you deny Christ's incarnation and saving work. And here's where I think this strikes a little bit closer. Paul would call the Corinthian church carnal because they developed their values from the world rather than from Scripture. They wanted status. They wanted people to think well of them. They wanted debaters. They wanted to be thought of as wise within their community. And Paul, he says, I can't even talk to you like spiritual men. I can't read the Bible to you because you act like carnal men. You are led by your flesh. You determine what's right by what works. 
And you will never make a decision, do you see? If you are in this position, you will never make a decision to be faithful to Christ if it requires you to be rejected by your town. This is what it means to be carnal. You prize the praise of men above the praise of God. Jesus tries and he rejects carnal men. Now, if you and I are honest, Jesus' reaction to the Pharisees and the Sadducees is very discouraging. The reason that it's discouraging is because if we're honest, we can see ourselves in these men. Have you ever been going through a hard time and you said, why me? But as we work through the rest of the narrative, as we get through next week, verses 5 through 20, which do go together, what you're going to find is that Jesus makes men spiritual. He makes men spiritual. A sign that you are a spiritual man is that you go to Christ and you confess your need for Him. You confess your need for His forgiveness and His cleansing. This is what spiritual men do. You confess your need to have your mind renewed so that you will think the way that He does. This is what spiritual men do. This is the mark of the spiritual man. The man who is embraced by Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we come before you to this morning and confessing first of all that Jesus himself is the spiritual man. He is the man who at every point of his life was focused upon you, doing your will. This was his, this was his food, this was his meat and drink to bring glory to your name, O Father, Son, and Spirit. And so our simple prayer this morning is that you would make us like Christ in that regard. That we would love you. That we would put aside vain things. Carnality. That we would not think like natural men, but like spiritual men. Endowed by your Spirit with a new mind. May we treasure Christ above all things. This is what spiritual men do. And may we desire to make His glory known more than our own. We pray in His name. Amen.